Hello and welcome to the Book of John, the podcast series. I'm Brianna Segrist, and we are going together through the Gospel of John so that we can see for ourselves who Jesus really is, so that we can recognize him in our own life today. Um, I'm going in John chapter 14 today and reading out of a translation called The Voice. The Voice is kind of a different translation, and you probably don't have a copy of it. And if you're reading out of a different translation, I encourage you to listen to uh, the translation I read and then maybe pause the podcast, read it in your own transition, and then pick it back up just so that you can kind of see how the two things compare. The Voice is this great translation that um, makes it kind of more readable and more in just contemporary language, but it also is not quite a literal word for word translation. So it is a little different from the ESV or NIV or whatever you might have. Here we go. We're reading in John chapter 14, starting in verse 18. Remember that, remember that Jesus is speaking here and he's talking to his disciples and it's the night he's going to be betrayed. So that's where we're picking up. These are Jesus's direct words. If you have a red letter version, this would all be read. Here we go. I will never abandon you like orphans. I will return to be with you. In a little while, the world will not see me, but I will not vanish completely from your sight. Because I live, you will also live. At that time, you will know that I am in the Father. You are in me, and I am in you. The one who loves me will do the things I have commanded. My Father loves everyone who loves me, and I will love you and reveal my heart, will, and nature to you. Okay, so he starts out by saying here, I will never abandon you like orphans. He's basically kind of warning them and preparing them and saying he knows he's about to be killed. He knows that. They don't seem to really understand that, but he knows it. So he's, before it even happens, he's trying to comfort them and say, you're never going to be totally alone. I'm never totally going to leave you. Don't get shaken up. Because what is it going to look like? To them, in about 12 hours, it's going to look like they've been abandoned, right? That all of their hopes are gone. But Jesus is already kind of preemptively saying, don't, don't think that. One of the questions we have is, do you think they remembered that? I guess we'll have to read forward and find out if they remember what he says, right? He says, the world will not see me, but I will not vanish completely from your sight. Is that, do you think that's referring to the three days or do you think that's referring to like the the days between Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost? Because if it's the three days, he does vanish completely from their sight. For You know, he's in the grave. He's not risen. If it's the time in between the resurrection and Pentecost, he's not, it's true. He's not vanished completely from their sight. He is, he reveals himself and he's around them for quite a while until he's ascended until his ascension. But maybe this is also kind of referring to the broader, the broader, like the longer time period of all of the time since Jesus sensed these words. Like he is, is he vanished completely from our sight? Well, our physical eyes, yes. But is he vanished completely from our sight? Well, the whole point of this podcast is so that we can say we want to recognize Jesus in our own lives because we believe he's a living God. We believe he is here. He has power. He is actually present with us now. And if if he is actually present and we can we can see evidence of him, we can experience 
communion and fellowship with Jesus here and now, then he hasn't vanished completely, right? But what does it say? The world will not see him. I think that's what we're experiencing now. The world doesn't see Christ, but we have more and more experiential knowledge of him being around. It reminds me of so many different, you know, allegories and things. Like, for instance, we often use the allegory of the wind. We don't see the wind, but we see the effects of the wind. We don't hear the wind, but we hear the effects of the wind. You know, that kind of, that kind of thing, I think is the same thing with Christ, that we don't, we don't see him with our physical eyes, but we find more and more evidence of him all the time until he is so real to us. It's almost as if he is visible. Then he goes on and says, because I live, you will also live. He's foretelling here that he's going to rise from the dead and therefore we will rise from the dead, right? Or do you see any other meaning to this? Let's read this again and Let's read this again and consider it again. I will never abandon you like orphans. I will return to be with you. In a little while, the world will not see me, but I will not vanish completely from your sight. Because I live, you will also live. You know, on this side of the story, knowing that he's about to die and rise, all of these words seem to make perfect sense, don't they? But I wonder what they meant to them. I wonder how confusing they were as they were sitting there. How confused these disciples were as they listened to these words. Do you feel like that sometimes in your own life? Like sometimes I think in my own relationship with God, I hear the Lord speaking things to me that seem really confusing and I don't know what he's talking about. When I'm when I'm trying to learn the ways of the spirit, when I'm trying to listen to the voice of the Lord, I feel sometimes as if I don't know the whole story and some of it just seems, either it seems far-fetched or it seems impossible (laughs) or it seems just confusing. I feel as if in my own story, not knowing what's ahead, not knowing the ending, not knowing not knowing what I'm coming up into can make the Lord's words to you now seem like you don't understand. You don't fully grasp what the meaning of, of them is. And I think that's probably what the disciples were feeling at this point. They didn't fully grasp, but then later on, they wrote these words here, remembering on the other side of the story, remembering what he said and saying, Oh, that's what he was talking about. Because I live, you will also live. It reminded, like all of these things suddenly seemed to fit together and make sense. And you know, he kind of talks about that point to them when they will understand. Because in verse 20, he goes on to say, at that time, you will know. He's already predicting that on the other side of this big event, they will finally understand. They will finally know. When you get to the other side, you will understand. At that time, you will know. Then he starts talking about what will they know? They will know that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Okay, here's a big question. Do you know this? We are at this time. We are on the other side. We are on the other side of this big thing. So here's the question. Do you know? Do you know that 
he is in the father we are in him and he is in us do we know that because it says that we will let's read this again and put your own name into it at that time you will know that I am in the father you are in me and I am in you read it as if he sang it to you at that time you will know that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. I know all these I know all these pronouns can get kind of shaky and wobbly. Who is I and who is you? Let's read it, let's read it, let's read it as an affirmation. At that time, let's read it as if we're speaking it back to Jesus. I will know that Jesus is in the Father. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. That's reading it from our point of view. I will know that Christ is in the Father. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. Do I know that? This is such a wide, deep subject that it is, it kind of seems like, well, what does that even mean? What does it mean to say Christ is in the Father? I will know that Christ is in the Father. What does it mean to be in? What does it mean for one person to be in another person? Well, remember that earlier in the same chapter, in verse 10, he has already started to talk about this concept. He says in verse 10, Don't you believe me when I say, I abide in the Father and the Father dwells in me? I'm not making this up as I go along. The Father has given me these truths that I have been speaking to you, and he empowers all my actions. Accept these truths. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And later in John chapter 17, he's also going to talk about it again. But this time he's talking directly to the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may you have sent me. What does this mean? We are in him. He is in us. He is in the Father. Let's go on and read a little bit more from 17. The glory that you have given me, remember he's talking to the Father, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What does this mean to be one, to be one, to be for the father and the son to be one and for us to be one? On the one hand, when we talked about verse 10, I think maybe three podcasts ago, I really try, I really was focusing more on how Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. We are one. Well, how is it that they are one? How is it that he is in the Father and the Father is in him? How is that true? And if if we believe that to be true, how do we believe that we are in him? 
and he is in us. What does that mean? Well, to begin with, to me, it means that I am not an orphan. I think I've talked before about how sometimes I see Christians kind of operate in their faith as though Jesus Christ was here at one time. He did do miracles. But then when he went to heaven, he left us with the Bible and said, you're on your own. And I see that as behaving like we are orphans. We have our inheritance, but we have no one here with us. We are orphans. And I think the opposite of that is believing that not only was he here as a human, but he is still here present with us. Now, on the one hand, I know that the Bible says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. I know that. And I know that the Lord is in heaven and earth is his footstool. I know that. I know that Jesus went to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit here to be with us. I know all of that. But also in another totally other way, I believe that there is not so, it is not this huge separation. The truth is that the spiritual world, the spiritual heaven, the heaven of God sees intimately the things of the earth. He sees us here. He not only sees us, but he actually has communion with us through his Holy Spirit. He didn't leave us as orphans. He didn't die and go away and leave us here to figure out the mess. He le he left, but he is still here. He is physically not here, but his spirit is still here. His spirit is here. It is present here. And his spirit lives in us. And I think that this is, you know, on in like an allegory sense to be in somebody means that you, you walk in their, um, in their name and authority, you know, in their, like in their will. So for instance, if the CEO sends a manager to a branch of his company with authority and directions, and that manager goes to this other branch and says, I'm here, I'm doing this that the CEO did, and I'm going to come in and do, 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 do all this stuff. That manager is coming in the name of the CEO, in the authority of the CEO, and with the directions and the power that the CEO has, right? Well, that's one way to be in somebody else. And in that way, the man, the CEO's directions and wills are fulfilled through the manager going to that branch, right? That is one like kind of, I guess you would say like, um, abstract way to think of it. It is one kind of, you know, one definition of saying you are in somebody. But another way to think of this, you are in somebody, is that actually physically the Holy Spirit is inside of us. He is inside of us. He actually is inside of us. And if we actually believe that the Holy Spirit is inside of us, then we believe that the Spirit of God lives inside of us. And since we know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and we also know that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one, then we are saying the Father is in us. So we are in Christ when we are fully in his will, walking in his, in his righteousness. We are in covered by the blood, walking along 
what his will is for us. We are in his power, in his will, in his authority, in his righteousness. We are fully in him. And then he is inside of us. His spirit lives fully inside of us. Jesus, when he was on the earth, was fully in the Father. He was walking in the Father's will. He was fully in the Father's righteousness. He was fully in the Father. And the Spirit of God was completely in him. And he wants that for us. He wants us to walk according to his will, be fully, like I think of it like a river. The river is completely flowing and we are in the middle of it. We're not walking along the edge. We're not going in and out. We are in the river. But in addition to that, the river is flowing out of us. It is actually in us. We are not just um, a separate body inside of this doing our own thing, but his Holy Spirit is inside of us, flowing out of us so that we are fully actually a part of the river and not just a thing inside of the river. Because I live, you will also live. At that time, you will know that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. He's talking about this concept of saying, we are one. We are one. We have, we submit our will to his, and he then turns around and blesses us with the desires of our hearts. We give the glory to him and he turns around and blesses and honors us with glory that we don't deserve. We, we love him and he loves us. We give our gifts to use for him and he uses our gifts through us to bless others and to bless ourselves. It, it's, we become one. It's like, it's like how marriage should be. And I know I've said this before, but the way marriage should be is two people, two separate, distinct people with their own hopes and their own dreams and their own bank accounts and their own families and their own everything come together. They join households. They join finances. They join goals and plans. They join up um, intimately and physically, they create a new thing. And the new thing is no longer two individually people, but the new thing is this new family. And the family did not exist. It is a new thing. It's a beautiful thing. But suddenly it is no longer two single people, but a new unit that is one thing. It is a home. It is a family. When we are in Christ, we are no longer our own individual self. But the thing is, the beautiful thing is that the way a family and a marriage should work is that every individual in it should be supported and encouraged and blossom and have more of a more of a beautiful opportunity to become who they meant to be than they did alone. That's what a marriage is supposed to do, is supposed to build up and refine each person and it's supposed to be a blessing and that is how it is in Christ we are no longer this single entity by ourselves, but we hook up and join in and submit ourselves and and recreate a re re um, re-identify ourselves or like he gives us a new identity as being one with him. And then in that we blossom and grow beautifully. That is what it means to be in him. It means to be, have a new identity, have to have a, uh, to, to be 
fully in his purposes and to allow him to fulfill his purposes through us. It's a, it's a beautiful concept. You know, it's funny because this kind of concept of being one is, is kind of co-opted sometimes by some, um, other versions of spirituality that are kind of common right now. There are other people these days who are spiritual in a non-biblical sense and they talk about oneness and they say, you know, it's, you know, they talk about the collective awareness or how, you know, if we just all kind of get on the same page and be one with the universe or get in with the flow or, or, you know, I know ourselves better. They have all these languages that basically what they're trying to achieve is what the Lord is, is doing for us here. Jesus Christ here want like sacrifices himself lays down his life so that we can be one with the father so that we can fully walk in what is the intended beauty and goodness of creation and he does this by laying his own life down and submitting to the father and then extending to us the righteousness that he earned but there's other thought there's other thoughts and teachings out there which have probably been around forever that talk about how you can find, you can find the, um, you can find the way to be one with the universe. You can get into the flow if you just, and then they list all these different things. You know, there's all these different ways that you can tap into the center of the universe and, and harmonize with the universe. And all I have to say is this, I think it's, I think it's interesting and fascinating that people have this desire. They have this desire to be one with something. You have a desire to know and to be known. You have a desire to know that you are on the right track and not screwing up all the time. But all of those desires are fulfilled in Christ. All of these desires are fulfilled by getting on our knees and knowing Jesus Christ, the person, not love the abstract concept, not the universe, like some strange, I don't know, metaphysical being, but actually, truly the person of Jesus Christ who came as a man, died bloodily and suffering on the cross for you because he knew you had that desire. He knew that you would want to know I'm on the right track. I'm beloved. I'm doing good. I'm, I'm safe in the arms of the one who created me. We all have those desires and he knew it and he was willing to come and suffer and die so that those desires in you could be fulfilled. And yet people reject Jesus all the time and start seeking oneness and start seeking fulfillment and start seeking kind of this, I like they seek righteousness, but they don't use those words and they reject Christ because they don't understand that Christ is offering that Christ is saying, I know you want to be accepted. I know you want to be righteous. I know you want to be free from this, um, constant constant, um, you know, this constant feeling that you're, you're messing up. He's like, I, I came and I suffered and died so that you would be free of that. And yet that's not the message that people hear. 
many, many times people go to church and they hear the message that just says, you are a sinner, you need to shape up. That's the message they hear all the time. And that's not the message of Christ. In the message of Christ, listen to what he says. Does he ever say to these disciples, you need to shape up? I never hear that message. And yet I hear that message all the time. I hear my kids repeat that message from other Christians. I hear that message. Okay, what is his message? What is Christ's message to these disciples? He says, in a little while, the world will not see me, but I will not vanish from your sight. I will never abandon you like orphans. Because I live, you will also live. At that time, you will know that I am in the Father. You are in me, and I am in you. He is basically affirming and comforting and loving them. He's counseling them with these tender, selfless words saying, you're about to go through a hard time, but don't give up. Don't lose heart. Let me tell you how it's going to turn out. That's what he's actually saying to them here. He's not telling them, shape up, although you and I both know from how the disciples have been acting that probably we would tend to tell them to shape up. We would probably tell them, hey, Peter, you're about to really mess up tonight. You better watch out. That's not what he says. He says, you're about to really lose heart. Don't lose heart. That's what he's saying. Then he goes on to say what it means to follow him. The one who loves me will do the things I have commanded. My father loves everyone who loves me. And I will love you and reveal my heart, will, and nature to you. This is the point. Jesus Christ was actually here on earth in a physical body just like yours. He came and these words are a message of they are the record of what he did while he was here. And what did he do while he was here? He came and comforted us and said, take heart. And then he said, I am in the father. I'm walking in the father. You also can be doing what I'm doing. You also can follow like I follow. You also can be in the Father and in me like I am in the Father. And then he died for us. He suffered and died for us. He hung on the cross when he had the ability to fly off of it because he wanted that for us. He loved us so much that that's what he did for us. This is who Jesus Christ is. And so today, if you are wondering who Jesus is, what he's doing in your life, what he looks like around in your life, listen to these words. He's saying he is in the father. The father completely loves the son. The father loves Jesus because Jesus obeys the father and Jesus loves the father. The Jesus came. He walked a sinless, beautiful life full of hope and love and wisdom and power and joy and purpose. Jesus came and did that. And he did it completely to make a way for us to do the same thing. Because he looked at us and I think it's 
the more I read this, the more I see he was willing to do this because he knew how good it was to be in the Father and how painful it was to not be in the Father. And so here he is willing to die and suffer so that we don't have to live in this painful state anymore so that we also can be in the father in the son and let his spirit live in us and what do we have to do what is our response if he says i'm dying for you so that you can be in the father what is our response well it says my father loves everyone who loves me the one who loves me will do the things i commanded and what is his command Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. His commands are not big and rough. His commands are not hard. They are, they are life and peace. His commands are to listen for his voice and obey it. He says, I will love you and reveal my heart, will, and nature to you. That's his command. His command is that we love him and we look to know his heart, to understand his will and understand his nature. Because when we do that, we're transformed to look like him. We act out his will and his nature. We start flowing in the river. The Holy Spirit then flows out of us. And then we are a part of that river. We're walking in righteousness. We walk in power and the Holy Spirit goes right through us and fulfills his will through us so that we also experience the joy that Jesus experienced of being one with the Father, of being completely connected, of not being against the it's of, of not being against the will of God, of not being out of the flow. We're completely immersed in the family of God. We're completely immersed in the will of God. We are a functioning member of the body of Christ. That's what we're meant to do. So let me go back and read this again, what we just read. Remember, he's speaking to the disciples, and this is what he says. In a little while, I'm sorry, wait, verse 18. I will never abandon you like orphans. I will return to be with you. In a little while, the world will not see me, but I will not vanish completely from your sight. Because I live, you will also live. At that time, you will know that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. The one who loves me will do the things I commanded. My Father loves everyone who loves me, and I will love you and reveal my heart, will, and nature to you. I want to go on just a little bit farther in this passage. One of the disciples asks him next, Lord, why will you reveal yourself to us, but not to the world? And Jesus answers, anyone who loves me will listen to my voice and obey. Anyone who loves me will listen. You see, the disciples are, are, are asking, they're asking this question, who is the world? Why is it that the world doesn't see you, but we do? They're trying to make this differential. Is there is there some people that you don't love? Is there some people that you don't care about? Why are we, why can we see you and not other people? And Jesus is answering by saying, 
anyone who loves me will listen to my voice. He's saying, you choose. You can be a part of the world or you can be in me. It's up to you. That's what he's saying. Anyone who loves me will listen to my voice. He's saying, you decide if you are in the world or you are in me. You make that decision. How do you decide? You decide by choosing whether you are going to love him and look at him and and know who he is and seek to know him or you choose whether you distance yourself, fix your eyes on something else and go after the other way. Think about other things and ignore Christ. Listen to the rest of what he says. Anyone who loves me will listen to my voice and obey. The Father will love him and we will draw close to him and make a dwelling place within him. The one who does not love me ignores my message, which is not from me, but from the Father who sent me. He's saying the world and the disciples are separated by those who love Christ and those who don't love Christ. And how do we love him? We love him by obeying his commands. We love him by choosing to love him. This morning I was reading an article where a whole bunch of people, mostly celebrities and well-known people, were talking about divorce. And it, it kind of went through and um, quoted a whole bunch of people who were talking about their own divorces. And over and over and over again, I kept hearing this same theme where the, they were saying, divorce is the most horrible thing that happens to you. It feels like failure. It feels like a death. And nobody ever wants it to happen to them. But when it happens, it's just sad and you have to move on. And as I was, as I was reading those quotes, I just kept feeling like, this modern attitude to divorce, that divorce is the worst thing that happens to you, but it just happens to you. It's not your choice. It just happens. It, it made me think about how, how gray of an area that is in our society. Does divorce just happen to you? Is it something that happens that is beyond your control? Or is it within our power to choose or not choose? I think as fallible human beings, sometimes divorce can just happen to you against your will completely as much as you can try, as much as you can try not to have it happen to you. It can happen to you. But isn't it fascinating that in Christ, Divorce does not ever happen to you. It never happens to you that you fall away from the Lord. When you fall away from the Lord, when you walk away from, when you, when you pull away or when you are far drawn, when you draw farther away from the Lord, it never happens to you. It is chosen by you. You have the choice all the time how close you are going to be to the Lord all the time. He clearly says, 
draw near to me and I will draw near to you. If you feel far away from the Lord right now, I want you to know it did not happen to you against your will. It didn't happen. And in the future, how close you can be to the Lord is not out of your control. When you actively choose to get closer to the Lord, he actively gets closer to you. He doesn't pull away from you. It's not out of your control. You can know the Lord more. You can. And a lot of times all it takes is you just expressing to the Lord, Lord, I want to know you more. I don't know how. Will you help me? And a lot of times he will just sweep in and make it easy for you to know him because he wants to be known by you. That is the truth of of how it really is. Unlike marital relationships and and on earth where it can, it depends solely, it depends on two people making that choice, two fallible people. One person might be trying and the other person's not. And therefore it's kind of out of your control a lot of times. But that's not the way it is with the Lord. For some reason, he has chosen to make us this promise that as long as we come towards him, he will also come towards us. It's a beautiful, amazing thing that we don't have anywhere else. We have no other guarantee of a relationship where we can draw near and they will definitely draw near to us. But the Lord never rejects those who call on his name. Absolutely never. Never. And that is true faith to believe that statement that as long as you turn your face towards the Lord and say, Lord, I want more of you. He'll say, okay, I'll give you more. Or if we turn to him and say, Lord, I repent of my sins and I want you. He says, okay, I offer you my forgiveness. I don't know why he is so merciful like that. I don't know why he hasn't given us more hoops we have to jump through and more things we got to do to prove that we're on track. But he doesn't. He really just says, come to me, turn to me, turn like love me and I will love you in return. He does that over and over and over again. That's what he does. That is the Jesus that I see here. That is who I see on the night in which he would betrayed. On the night when he's about to be dragged away and beaten for you, he left you these words saying, anyone who comes to me at any time, I will not reject. The father will not reject. We will turn to you, wrap our arms around you and love you. That's what he was saying. He was comforting these disciples who were about to betray him and run away from him. He was about to hang on the cross and bleed for us and die for us. And he comforted us. That's what was going on in this right here. So if you want to know where he is in your life today, let me tell you right now, he has made a way for you to be one, to be completely freed from sin, to be completely one in him, to receive the inheritance that he earned, to receive the glory that he earned and he deserves. He made a way for us to be completely righteous, completely freed from all of the guilt and the the sin that we have walked in and rebellion we've walked in for so long to completely be completely free from the isolation and loneliness that we feel. He made a way for us to be accepted, loved, embraced, um, affirmed. He made a way for us to be one 
with the creator of the universe. And even when he was about to suffer for us, he comforted us. He looked at us and said, take heart. I will never, I will never reject you if you come to me. The father loves you if you love me. That's who Jesus is. That's the picture that we see here. That's what John says about Jesus in this passage.